0: Well, Father, we come before you just grateful that we can gather together as an assembly and sing your praises and listen to your word. And Father, we thank you for the clarity and the conviction which the word gives, how it speaks uh, truly about all the situations in life. And as we talk about this topic, I pray uh, that you will help us to have your heart um, for the unborn to value and cherish life. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, yesterday was Christmas. Do you guys have a good Christmas? Yeah. Loved it, loved it. You know, the older I get, the more I like the food more than the gifts. That's kind of my observation. Not sure if that's a good thing or not, but, but now that uh, Christmas is kind of like the pinnacle of the holiday season, and now we kind of move on to uh, the next holiday, and you're celebrating Kwanzaa, it's gonna be New Year's Day, right? And one great thing about New Year's and just this time, it's a it's a time of reflection, right? It's reflecting on the new stories of the year, uh, thinking about the, uh, the people we lost, right? This year, uh, one of the great Kansans, Bob Dole, passed away. Just read that Desmond Tutu passed away. Prince Philip, uh, Larry King. Um, you know, many of these notable men and women who have gone on. But it's also a time to even look forward to the next year and anticipate what is 2022 going to bring now i know i said this last year i hope this last year i hope that this is the year that the pandemic comes to an end right (laughs) wouldn't that be nice (laughs) amen but i i look to the future i'm not a prophet but i think that this will be the year when roe versus wade is finally overturned right wouldn't that be wonderful and when that happens, there will be a national freakout like none we have ever seen. Be prepared for the rage. But let me uh, explain to you why I think that's the case. Okay? In 2018, the state of Mississippi passed an abortion operation ban uh, on all pregnancies past 15 weeks. This was a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade, uh, or more specifically to Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a 1993 uh, decision by the Supreme Court that basically said that you cannot have any abortion restrictions for any pregnancy under 24 weeks. And the reason why 24 weeks was this big number is that is the age of viability. The baby can theoretically out, uh, survive outside the womb at 24 weeks, uh, therefore, If you want to restrict abortion after that point, that's okay. And so that's why they have partial birth abortion bans, and that's been upheld by uh, the Supreme Court. Well, the state of Mississippi decided to attack the age of viability specifically. They argued that with modern technology, that is not 24 weeks anymore. Some children survive outside the womb at the age of 21 weeks uh, of gestation. And so why does the Supreme Court decide this? Why not leave it to the states? And given that there is a 6-3 conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court, uh, many legal um, watchers uh, anticipate that the Mississippi law will almost certainly be upheld. And there is speculation that five conservative, conservative justices in the opinion Will actually overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, just so you know, that doesn't mean that abortion is going to be outlawed. What that means is that the issue of abortion will be decided by the states. And many states anticipating this moment have adopted what you call kind of trigger laws that should Roe versus Wade be overturned, abortion surgical abortion will automatically be banned, okay? So that's the situation that we are uh, about to possibly take. And, and that's why when I look at 2022, right, when you hear about 1973, I, one of my friends runs a website called abort73.com. It's because we all know that in 1973, that's when they had Roe versus Wade. Well, 2022 will be a milestone year. And abortion combined with the midterm elections will make this a a national conversation. And and the pro-abortion movement will marshal every resource that they have to fight tooth and nail against any restriction on abortion. You're gonna see state legislatures taking this to the ballot box you are going to see the propaganda arm of the pro-abortion industry, the mainstream media, and many of the movie studios coming out with, with news stories of these poor southern women who can't get an abortion. There's going to be a change of, of language where we're not pro-life, we're, we're forced birthers. I read it. (laughs) Forced birthers. And so it'd be really easy. We're also going to find that many of the pro-life politicians who've always said that they were pro-life because it's easy to be pro-life when it doesn't mean that you do anything meaningfully pro-life are going to back off. You're going to see some Christian leaders lose their nerve on the topic. I mean, it's going to be something that universities will bring up continually. It might, in fact, the public school um, curriculum as well. And and the, the way that it will be argued is not by actual arguments, but by shaming. Shame on you for oppressing minorities, for oppressing women, for oppressing the poor. And... And this would be my, my concern. the pro-life position is kind of the default position of evangelical Christianity and of this church. and it's been that way since 1973. Well, really a little bit beyond that, because it took a little while to kind of get our bearings on the issue. And for some of the young, it was always their parents' issue, right That's what they cared about, but not necessarily what I care about. And, and so there's been more energy towards social justice in other ways and And this is going to be a real test of of the church. This is going to be something where people will really dialogue about. And if you don't have a real conviction on this issue, you're going to find yourself really wavering. So in anticipation of what I think will be the issue of the year, I wanted to dedicate a sermon to really try to prepare uh, this flock for how do you think rightly about abortion? What do you make of life after Roe versus Wade? And so this is going to be selected scriptures. I know many of you like to outline. I'm sorry I don't have anything better than the biblical basis for the pro-life cause and objections to the pro-life cause. Uh, But my goal is to help all of you understand what the scriptures have to say so that you can have confidence in what the Bible says about affirming the lives of the unborn, okay? So really, when you look at the biblical basis for the pro-life cause, this is the question. This is the ethical question. It's not, is abortion wrong? That's not the question. It's not, is abortion harmful? This is the question. Is abortion murder? Okay? Is abortion murder? Now, to kind of break this down, I think it's important to to ask the question, what is murder, right? Murder is the unlawful taking of a human life, which kind of peels back a little bit to, is the unborn child, does he count as, or she count as an unborn life, a life worth protecting? And this is a, a question that uh, people have wrestled with for a while. Uh, Bill Clinton was a Southern Baptist, and he was pro-life initially, but then he became pro-abortion. And what changed his mind is he talked to his pastor about it, and his pastor told him that in the Bible, it is taught that life does not begin until first breath. When the baby is able to to breathe, that is when he is fully human at that point. And and you think, that's just ridiculous, but as Bill Clinton, are you surprised? I'm just saying it, okay? I'm just saying that's what you're thinking. That's what you're thinking. But W. A. Criswell, who was a very well-known Southern Baptist pastor, pastor at First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, one uh, of the, the, the chief conservative pastors who brought the Southern Baptist Church uh, back to biblical faithfulness, he said this after Roe versus Wade. I've always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from his mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me what is best for the mother and the future should be allowed." So W.A. Criswell initially said that Roe versus Wade was probably a good decision, but he changed his mind. He changed his mind. But all that to say, uh, there has been some murkiness on this issue, and I think a lot of people didn't know how to take uh, Roe versus Wade in 1973, and it took a while for there to be some moral consensus on the topic. And so what I want to do is kind of introduce you to just the argument. So why is it that the unborn life is worth protecting? Why is abortion murder? Why is murder wrong? And it all begins in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. One of the most important passages on the dignity of man. And by man, I mean the, the inclusive term, men and women, human beings. The Lord said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Imago Dei, image of God. There is a unique place that humans have on this planet. We are created in God's image. We represent God To human, God, to to creation, right? We rule on His behalf. We've been given special, unique abilities to do that, right? You look at people who just freak out if uh, if some chimpanzee learns how to say please in sign language. You're like, wow, how advanced! I I mean, I'm like, he's an ape. (laughs) He's an ape. Humans are special, right? You look at what makes a human worth, what they're worth. They're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter the color of their skin. It doesn't matter the ethnic background, the language they speak. It, it doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter whether or not they have the absence of physical handicaps. It doesn't matter their, their gender. It doesn't matter their earning potential, their place and status in life. If they're made in the image of God, they are a special, unique, prized, cherished possession. All humans are worth something because God made them in his image. Now this is reaffirmed after the flood. Remember, God sent the flood, wipe out all humanity save eight. And he says this in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, I want to make three observations here. Number one, God makes a distinction between mankind and animals. Previously, he says, hey, if you want to, like, feast on some beef, go for it. Take and eat. I remember watching this viral video of this uh, vegan protester who walked into a highfalutin San Francisco restaurant, disrupted everyone, and she had a video camera behind her, and she told everyone, you all are murderers. And then she tells a story about this chicken that she owns and says, her name was Ethel, and she wants to live I mean, I laughed so hard I almost couldn't finish my burger. It was awful. <laughs> it's okay to eat animals. <laughs> They're not made in the image of God. And, and do me a favor, don't refer to your pets as your children. They're not your children. They're pets, right, Floyd? Yeah. Amen, right? Those aren't your children. There is a difference. Humans are made in the image of God, okay? That's one observation. Number two, killing humans is not wrong for God. He gives and he takes life, right? He just took the lives of everyone except for eight. He even says it's okay to kill people who take another life, right? Murder is the unlawful taking of human life. There are stipulations where it is lawful to do so. And thirdly, the reason why murder is worthy of death is because mankind is made in the image of God. And an attack on man is an attack on the image of God and is an attack on God. That's why it's worth the death penalty. Moving on, this is reaffirmed in the Sixth Commandment, right? You shall not murder. Now, there's a difference between murder and killing, right? There's an allowance for killing in capital punishment. There's an allowance for killing in a just war, right? In a just war, if you have an evil army, those soldiers who enlisted in the evil army are serving an evil cause, and they are forfeiting their right to live at that point, right? God allows for killing in those instances, but not in any other circumstance. There is capital punishment, which is instituted by God and to be handled in a just and fair way. There is an allowance for killing, but all other human life must be protected. And you can even argue that just war and capital punishment is in the service of protecting human life, which God values. Also, when you look at the concept of murder, as we kind of go through the Levitical law, Uh, there is a distinction between, let's say, murder and manslaughter, right? And and what's the difference? It's intent. So for murder to be murder, there has to be the intent to take a human life that's made in the image of God. And and this explains, incidentally, why, in in some cases, um, abortion, if you were to call it that, is not murder. In the case of an ectopic pregnancy, a rare situation where The mother and the baby will die if if the baby grows and continues, right? So an abortion is performed to remove the baby so that the mother may live. So this is a choice. One survives or both die. And so the purpose and the intent of the abortion is not to just take a life. It's really to save a life. Does that make sense? And all ethicists would agree with that conclusion. You know, that would be the rare exception when the life of the mother is truly on the line. Okay, so that's not what I'm talking about here. In all other cases, when it's an elective abortion, it is the intentional taking of a human life who is made in the image of God. Now, there is a little bit of pushback in our modern age. Uh, At what point does the child become the image of God? And they may not use uh, that category, right? People would assume that murder is wrong. Every time I share the gospel with someone, I might ask them, are you a good person? And they always say, I'm a good person because I haven't killed anyone, right? So at least they believe murder is wrong. But at what point would you say it's wrong to take someone's life and somebody who is pro-abortion would say it's permissible to take them their lives in the womb? And part of this is a modern understanding of kind of a a two-story division, uh, a bifurcation within a human being. They say that there is a difference between the soul and the body, the person and the human being, the immaterial and the material. So you, you look at transgender uh, theology. I'm just going to call it that. Where somebody could say with all seriousness that I am born male. That is my biological human flesh. But internally, I am a female. right? I am a female as a person born into a human body. And so who are they really? They would say, I am really female. Who I am as a person is who I really am. The body is just genetic casing. And so when it comes to thinking through terms of the unborn life, they would say, yes, that fetus is a human being because what else could it be, right? But it's not a person. It's not a person until it exits the womb or it's not a person until it can be viable. And some ethicists would even go beyond that. They would say the essence of what makes a person a person is choices and autonomy. And so they would argue that a baby is not a person until certain uh, factors are in place. Francis Crick, I'm not sure if you know who he is. He's one of the the founders of DNA. Uh, Not of DNA. The discoverer of DNA. Big difference. (laughs) We all know Jesus was the, you know founder of DNA so um, not a heretic but this is what he says no newborn infant should be declared a human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment and if it fails these tests it forfeits the right to life some will say that infant is not autonomous therefore it doesn't have the right to life Some would even say, when they hit two or three, and they really are autonomous, at that point, they are a person and should be afforded the right to live. Isn't that interesting? It's terrible. But that's where they're approaching it from. They say, yeah, the baby is a a human, but not a person. Now, where do they get that from? Is that scientific? I mean, you would think that they would be just on the safe side Well, just to be on the safe side, to make sure that we're not accidentally murdering anybody, let's just go ahead and say that life starts at conception. But because of a drive for autonomy and wanting to live your own way on your own terms and making your own choices, and because they define humans not by being made in the image of God, but basically by ourselves, our self-expression, I think, therefore, I am, and by human autonomy... Autonomy is the, the fuel of the religion of secular society. And so ultimately, when you start saying that, that the human being is not a human being, and not a, it's just a human being and not a person, you're making a religious argument, aren't you? You're not invoking God, but it is a religious argument. That's why we should have no shame in using religion to justify our position. Everybody uses religion to answer these ethical questions. They all do. We're just honest about it. And so when we look at the scriptures, what does it say? Is the unborn child made in the image of God? Should their lives be protected? And I'll take you to some verses. Number one is Psalm 139, 13 through 16. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. We see that God knew certain people before birth. This is the Psalm of David. You have formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. In your book were all written the days of my life ordained from me, when, as yet, there was not one of them. Notice how he views him. David is not a chemical reaction. He's not cellular growth. He's not tissue. It's me. You knew me in my mother's womb. He was the fruit of the creative process of God. Now, I snoozed through the seventh-grade movie. so when we were pregnant, well, not we, I had something to do with it, but when Becky was pregnant with Julia, <laughs> I, uh, I got an education. I got an education. The day of conception, the baby is one cell but a genetically unique individual. Three days later, 16 cells. Three weeks, the size of a pencil point. Twelve weeks, three inches long, and an ounce heavy. I mean, it's just like, it's unbelievable. And just the the fact that one cell has all this information to make teeth and noses and lungs and livers and kidneys and bone, I mean, the nervous system. I mean, it is God's creative process at work. And when the baby's born, I mean, still growing, right? You see, God is actively involved in stitching together the little image of God. Secondly, is Psalm 51.5, where David points out that he was a sinner from conception. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. He says he was sinful from conception. He didn't say that conception was sinful, but that he was sinful from conception. From the very beginning, Adam's curse was upon him at the earliest point. And then uh, I think probably the clearest affirmation of the humanity of a child is in Luke one forty four. right? So this is my Christmas tie-in. Okay, my Christmas tie-in is John the Baptist and Jesus. Elizabeth said when Mary visited uh, her, that's John's mother, Luke 144, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in joy, leaped in my womb for joy. And so the baby, John the Baptist, who was going to point out the Messiah, got an early start before he breathed in any air. I mean, I look at our our children, and all of them had personality in the womb that carried with them afterwards. Julia did aerobics in the womb continuously. (laughs) Nathan did slow, powerful kicks. Amberly, we had to shake her a few times to make sure she was alive, And, and she was our best lap sitter by far. And Jake just punished Becky <laughs> with kicks and punches, and I'm not gonna to make too many comment too much commentary, but you know, it pretended to the future. <laughs> right, they all had personality, even in the womb. It's just a change of environment. Then you look at the miracle of the incarnation. An angel tells Mary in Luke 1:35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Right? The miracle of the Incarnation. We celebrate His birth on Christmas. But the miracle of the Incarnation started nine months before that. And then, Elizabeth, when she runs into Mary, says this in Luke 1, 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She is, not will be, but she is the mother of the Lord. Pretty clear, isn't it? So we go to probably the one passage in Scripture that some might argue allows for abortion. And in fact, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus 21, 12 through. 25. This is part of the law code given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And what's interesting about the law code is it's all an exposition of the Ten Commandments. In this case, this is an exposition of the commandment, the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder. Now, we are technically not under this law, but what it does show is how God values a human life. So I'll go ahead and read it to you and I'll I'll explain to you the issue. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall pay a fine as a woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, and then you shall appoint a penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, and wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, this is the situation. Two men are mixing it up. And they are fighting without a care for the people around them. And a pregnant woman gets caught up in the melee. And depending on what happens to the pregnant woman and the baby, there are punishments to be dispensed. Now, there's two major views on this issue. There's what's called the mi- miscarriage view, and the other one is the live childbirth view. Okay, so this will be a little bit technical, but given that this is kind of the battleground, I thought it would be helpful to kind of walk you through the issue so that you understand that this is actually one of the most powerful pro life passages in Scripture. Okay, so the first view is called the miscarriage uh, impersonation. Uh, not impersonation, interpretation, the miscarriage interpretation. And that is the idea that if the two men get into a melee and the woman gets hit so that she has a miscarriage, the understanding is the men have to pay a fine to the husband. But if the woman herself is hurt in any way, then lex talionis, the law of retaliation, if the woman hurt her eye, then their eyes are to be taken. If they hurt her hand, their hand is to be cut off. If, if they are to kill her, injure her to the point of death, they are to die, right? That's the law of retaliation. And so what they would argue is, notice how there is a difference between the punishment if the woman is injured versus the baby being injured. And given that one could potentially get the death penalty while the other one just gets the fine... It's very clear that God has an unequal esteem for the life of the woman versus the life of the mother. Does that make sense? I'm not saying that you need to agree with it, but that is the argument. So the pushback on that, I would, I would give you five arguments. Number one, uh, the usual term for stillbe- stillborn, uh, Nefel, is not used in this text. Rather, it's a word for live childbirth, which is "yeled. Two. Notice how the text doesn't make any distinction between what happens to the baby or what happens to the mother. There are no pronouns, no feminine pronouns. There's not she or her, it's left open. And I think the reason why this is the case is that it could be a male or female child. Third, this couldn't apply to the abortion debate because the abortion is the intentional taking of life. This is accidental. Fourth, just because there's a lesser penalty for a miscarriage doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't value his life. Um, Interestingly enough, if a man beats his slave to the point of death, the death penalty is not required of him in the Mosaic Law. And that's another sermon all to itself. But the larger point is, the difference in penalty doesn't mean that there's, an, there's no esteem for the unborn life. And number five, even if this interpretation is true, it does not condone or endorse abortion in any way. There still is a fine to be paid, okay? So that's the miscarriage interpretation, and I reject it in favor of what's called the live uh, childbirth view, the premature childbirth view. And so the idea is two men get into a melee, They hit the woman, her water breaks, she goes into labor. And depending on what happens will depend on what happens to the men. Now as I mentioned, the word for stillborn is not used in this passage. And Moses incidentally knew the word for uh, stillborn because he uses it in different passages in Genesis, right, and Moses was the author of Genesis, he's the author of Exodus. also, the word injury is indefinite. They can apply to either the child or the mother. And ultimately, what you see is that this is the only place in the entire Bible where a death penalty would be endorsed for accidental death. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. So again, he uses a word for a live childbirth. He knows a word for stillborn and doesn't use it. There's ambiguous language here to suggest that the penalty can go either to um, injury to the mother or the child would lead to a penalty for the men. And so if they hit the mother, she gives birth, and the baby dies, those men who got into that melee will be given the death penalty. That's pretty severe, because it shows you how much God values human life, unborn life. They're the most vulnerable, the most protected, and next time you get into a fight with your buddy, just make sure that it's not a pregnant woman in sight, right? That's the lesson. That's the moral of the story, so when you look at the scriptures, it is very clear that the unborn child is made in the image of God and he is to be protected. You, cannot find, you can't find any cases where abortion is endorsed as good or right. It is murder. So in light of the clarity of the biblical teaching, how do you push back on some of the opposition to this? And frankly when there is a full-on assault on the pro-life position, often what uh, many of the opponents of abortion, opponents uh, of life will do is they'll, they'll trot out evangelicals, quote-unquote evangelicals, to, to basically shame other evangelicals into adopting their view, right? It's often just an attempt to kind of Gaslight evangelicals, that you're crazy. You're the ones who are wrong. Look, these evangelicals disagree with you, and they'll get an outsized platform because of the agenda of the people who want to use their stories. So what will the oppositions be? I'll, I'll list some, and I'm not all of them, but this is my best guess. One, you are imposing your religion on other people. You're imposing your religion on other people. Well, the division of body and soul that many of them are arguing is a religious argument, isn't it? Secondly, I don't feel bad about imposing my religion on other people. I mean, if there was a, if I was a missionary to Africa and the local tribe was practicing child sacrifice, I would impose my religion on them. If I was a missionary to India 300 years ago and I watched widow after widow throw themselves on the, their dead husband's funeral pyre, I would impose my religion on them. If I see unborn children being murdered, I'm going to impose my religion on them. Secondly, and this will be a new one, the pro-life cause is racist. The pro-life cause is racist. And the logic is, because the Ku Klux Klan in the past has protested abortion because they killed white babies, that must mean that all people who share the same causes of the Ku Klux Klan are also racist, right? But it wasn't the Ku Klux Klan that moved evangelicals towards a pro-life position. I mean, the pro-life position traditionally has been defended in Roman Catholic ethical thought, right, which is not something the Klan would endorse, right? Those are the roots of the pro-life movement is in Roman Catholic thought. Now, what about the roots of the pro-abortion movement? You guys ever heard of Margaret Singer? Oh, I, I like the loathing. Oh, yes. Well, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood, and one of the reasons why she advocated for it is she was a believer in eugenics. Okay? Eugenics was the popular belief that some traits should be inherited and some should not. For the future of society, let's make sure that the people with the best genes breed and the people with the worst genes do not. And it was her belief that we need to limit the breeding of the black or Negro population. You know, and you look at how African-Americans comprise 13% of the American population, but also 38% of the abortions. I came across an interesting quote which linked the right to privacy, which is kind of the, the pro-abortion argument with slavery, and this was the quote about it. If one accepts the position that life is private, and therefore you have the right to do with it as you please, one must also accept the conclusion of that logic. That was the premise of slavery. You could not protest the existence or treatment of slaves on the plantation because that was private and therefore outside your right to be concerned. Do you know who said that? Jesse Jackson in 1977. He was actually a very pro-life advocate. He would actually tell people that if abortion was legal in 1941, my mother would have aborted me. It wasn't until he ran for president in 1988 that he reversed his position. So, does the pro-life cause have racist roots? I think we kind of know the answer. Number three, you should support a consistent pro-life ethic. And this is probably the one that we're going to hear the most, right? You need to be, have a consistent pro-life ethic. Uh, In the words of one self-professed evangelical, the pro-life ethic is uh, advocacy against abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, nuclear weapons, poverty, and racism. And it's argued that no single political party gets all of these right. It's really a wash. Republicans get some, uh, the Democrats get more. Sure, the Republicans stand against euthanasia and abortion, but what about Capital punishment and nuclear weapons and poverty and racism. And I have some responses to this. Number one, um, the Bible does allow for just war and capital punishment. And they do it in a pro-life way. If someone murders another human being made in the image of God, capital punishment is a means of affirming the life. Secondly, there is a difference between straight-line issues and jagged-line issues. Okay, I got this from Jonathan Lehman. It's a very helpful category. A straight-line issue is an issue where there's a direct line from the teaching of the Bible to public policy, okay? Abortion is wrong. Straight-line, ban abortion. A jagged-line issue is something where uh, the connection between what the Bible teaches and public policy is a little bit more intricate, right? So you look at poverty, right? Poverty is wrong. You can't just ban poverty, right? Poverty is now outlawed. Or you look at healthcare, right? What's the Christian position on healthcare? Well, we should respect the dignity of life. We should advocate for just and fair treatment. We should recognize the limits of technology that we can't have people live forever. Uh, fairness compassion, all of that stuff is there. But, but is, is there a biblical position on health care? Can you be a Christian to support Medicaid, Medicare, or even Obamacare? I mean, those are jagged line issues. There is a moral clarity with abortion that those other issues don't have. Further, if 60 million toddlers were murdered in the last 50 years, we would see that there is a different moral weight to that issue versus other issues, right? And if we were to discover that 38% of those 60 million toddlers who were murdered were African-American, then we wouldn't look away and deal with the racial racist issues over there when this is one of the big ones. right? There is a moral clarity to abortion. Number four, we should reduce the causes of abortion, not make laws against abortion, well, by all means, reduce the causes. But it's kind of like saying, we need to reduce the causes of toddler murder, but not outlaw toddler murder. Finally, we don't want to infringe on the rights of others. Well, who's, who are the others? Our unborn children, image bearers, who deserve the right to live? Right, this is really a, a battle of the wills. See, if Roe versus Wade falls, I mean, there is going to be a cultural upheaval, and we all need to be prepared to do what we can uh, to speak the truth in love. This may involve, um, you know, an opportunity in Kansas where we don't have one of those trigger laws uh, to possibly see about eliminating abortion here, but. But if Roe versus Wade falls, many of them will just go to Colorado to get their abortion, right? There's going to be mail-order abortion pills. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of laws that are going on. And, and this is where wisdom in the fight will, will take place, right? I heard the difference between uh, wisdom and what's lawful is kind of like the difference between the rules of the game and the strategy to win. And there are going to be different approaches for taking on this issue to try to save as much life as possible. But I think there's another element that we also need to remember is the posture that we take as we advocate for the unborn, right? Why do we advocate for the unborn? Because we love life, we love children, we love people, we love the Lord, and we have compassion. We have compassion. And in the midst of all the rancor, being a place of peace, serenity, and compassion needs to be part of our identity. And that's why I've always been a huge fan of crisis pregnancy centers. Right? Those are the front lines where they are helping young expectant mothers who are desperate to know having a child is actually possible. You can have this baby. There are resources available. And crisis pregnancy centers in places like California will be all the more strategic, won't they? But also, I think, having a, a, uh, uh, even having compassion on the mothers who've had an abortion. You know, it's very difficult when all of society tells you what you want to hear and tells you that it's okay, and your boyfriend is pressuring you to just go ahead with the act and then potentially regret it forever right? So in some sense, you know, some of the mothers, I'm not going to say all, but but some have been victims of that. Yeah, you know, there will be, you know, as this is more of a discussion, I mean, some of you, I look around the room, might have had an abortion, or perhaps your girlfriend had an abortion, and you were the one who drove her to the abortion clinic, and paid for it, and advocated for it. I, I don't know the story. But don't let what happened in the past to dictate what you believe and what you'll advocate for in the future. Uh, I think about David, one of the great men of God and also one who committed a a heinous sin, um, murdered a loyal subject, stole his wife, was confronted on it. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth and my inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And that's a promise to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ, right? He forgives everyone, no matter what you've done. But then notice the pivot here. Let me hear with joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me and then he goes on to say and i will teach sinners your ways what you've done in the past is the past you leave it there take it to the cross you will be washed you'll be clean but from here on out teach sinners your ways advocate for the lives of the unborn have a firm conviction that this is god's will and as we indict society on their sin let's also make sure that we offer the hope of the gospel for those who recognize it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask for strength of conviction, clarity of thought as we embark on what could be a pivotal year. We pray for those Supreme Court justices. We pray that they will uh, act on their conviction. We pray that you might move them to overturn Roe versus Wade and peel back uh, this ungodly law. We pray for the lives of the unborn, we pray for our church that will have shrewd engagement in this, and we pray that you will just help um, all of us to remember that we're not just fighting ideas, we're fighting for people, we're fighting for lives, and give us a real love of the little ones and compassion on those who have made grave mistakes and sins in the past too. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.